This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Guillaume Pitron. Guillaume is an author and journalist from France, and he joined me to talk about his new book, The Rare Metals War, The Dark Side of Clean Energy and Digital Technologies. And I'm delighted to welcome onto the program Guillaume Pitron, who is a French award-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker for France's leading television channels, and his journalistic work currently and has done for a number of years focused on commodities and on the economic, political and environmental issues surrounding their use. And Guillaume's first book is called The Rare Metals War, The Dark Side of Clean Energy and Digital Technologies. And I welcome Guillaume now, who joins me from France. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. It's so wonderful to speak with you about what is an absolutely fascinating topic. And um, I'm sure that perhaps some people, when they hear about rare metals and rare earth metals, may not realize just how much of an interesting topic it is. So first up, I wanted to ask you, what prompted you to decide to look into such a, a topic that really hasn't been part of the public conversation for very long? Well, Amy, it's precisely because it's been a topic that was not sufficiently addressed in the general media. And uh, as a journalist, I try to uh, unveil different stories. And talking about rare metals is obviously an unknown story. These metals are not very well known because uh, their names are strange. We talk about uh, tungsten, cobalt, gallium, antimony rare earth, which is a a class of rare metals. And these metals are everywhere around us in our digital lives, in our green technologies, but we just don't know about their existence. And what was fascinating is to actually discover how useful they are, but we just don't know them. And that's what sparked my interest in, in these commodities. Yes. And um, you do provide an excellent overview in terms of the story of humans and how we've developed different forms of energy and just how vital energy is to the way that we develop as a globe, as a, a group of nations and countries. I wondered whether we could set the scene and to think about taking us back to the 18th century, which you do in the introduction of this book, to show that we really have moved through a few phases within the 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th century, and of course now into the 21st century. And I wonder if if you could share with us how we've developed and the, the key points in time in terms of where we've chosen to use a different or new technology in terms of creating energy. Sure, Amy. Actually, um, we are undergoing and we are living today uh, in the 21st century a third industrial revolution, which is an energy revolution. But before this one, there have been two, two first industrial revolutions. The first industrial revolution started in the 18th century and uh, gained importance in the 19th century. And this industrial revolution was based on a new set of technologies whose name was steam engines. And these steam engines would actually make the world much faster and much richer. But actually to make these steam engines work, there was a huge need, especially in the UK, where this technology was first developed. There was a need for coal to make these uh, steam engines work and to make the world develop faster. And then we moved in the 20th century to a second industrial and energy revolution, and we replaced the steam engine by the oil motor. And that would make the world even richer and even faster because the oil motor would have a much better efficiency and would even allow planes to take off the ground. But then we will replace our need for coal by a new need for making these new technologies work. And this is actually still oil, petrol. And now we're moving to a third industrial revolution, 
Because what? Because we want to get rid of oil and coal because these two commodities are responsible for climate change. And we say, we're going to go through a third energy revolution and we're going to uh, develop new technologies, so-called green technologies, such as wind turbines, solar panels, electric vehicles. And these technologies don't use coal and, and oil anymore. To, to work, but these technologies don't come out of thin air. They need to be built in order to for us to use them. And because we are in industrialized societies where we suddenly forget the link between the raw materials and the end product, we just forget that all these new green technologies are made of a third set of commodities, which are metals, base metals such as iron, copper, aluminium, and also the rare metals we've talked about, which are not very rare because we can find them everywhere on Earth, but more rare than base metals. Can be, they can be up to 3,000 times more rare in a mine than a base metal. And these rare metals are very much, um, very, much uh, very interesting for scientists, for industrials, because of their exceptional physical and chemical properties. And we cannot do without them for making our green technologies better actually for making the world even more rich and even more fast. And now the question is, wonderful, we're going to experience this new green revolution. This is a very good news for the environment. But the question is, where are we going to get these resources? Yes, that is a really important question. And I was really interested in when you were talking about these rare metals and the fact that they're actually found in terrestrial rocks and um, that they're found together with some of the more common metals, the abundant metals that we often do know about that you've already described. And so they're not actually found in, in kind of specially formed, separately formed pieces. You actually need to engage in a very intensive refining process in order to find and purify these particular rare metals that we're talking about. Could you share with us what makes these rare metals and that refining process such an important thing and um, important for our conversation now in terms of talking about this dark side of renewable energy and digital technologies? Sure. Actually, um, in a mine, whichever mine it is, you don't only find one metal in a mine. You find a lot of metals which are mixed together in the rock. And the work of a mining industry is not only to extract the rock, but to separate the various metals contained in the rock and to refine them. And in an iron mine, for example, you will find rare metals. You will find a rare metal, for example, whose name is neodymium. And this neodymium is very important for electric cars, but also for your phones. Your phone vibrates because of neodymium. But this neodymium is 1,000 times more rare than the iron. So if you want to extract and purify one kilogram of iron, then you'll come up with, with one gram of neodymium. So how do you separate this iron from the neodymium to come up with a 100% pure neodymium? You've got to use a lot of chemicals and you have to repeat this process many times and to use a lot of water and it's very energy consuming and very time consuming to end up with such a pure rare metal such as neodymium. So naturally, this process, as you can understand, will be energy consuming, time consuming, and it will be polluting, obviously. Mm. And um, you do describe in some detail some of the different chemicals and processes that are required. And I was surprised to hear that there was um, not just some kinds of corrosive chemicals that are involved, but also the fact that there is also radiation, certain amounts of radiation that's involved in this process. Yeah, exactly, because actually uh, some of these rare metals, such as rare earths, uh, once again, rare earths is a specific class of rare metals, you find them naturally mixed in the earth's crust with um, uranium, for example, and uranium is radioactive. So rare earths are not radioactive by themselves, but the fact of separating them from uranium during the refining process will generate the radioactivity from the uranium. 
So you've got a, a refining process, which is uh, not very refined in a way, mm. uh, because if you want to separate these rare earths from the uranium, you will generate part of the radioactivity from the uranium. So that's why we come up with uh, very polluting processes. And, uh, you know, Amy, we don't really know about that. Uh, we are in the West happy to enjoy electric cars and green technologies and, and beautiful smartphones. But um, the people who have to refine and who have to work in the mines and the refineries, especially in China, where these rare metals are mostly being extracted, very much know about this uranium stuff and all these kinds of pollution. Yes, and it was really interesting to read about these towns in China that you visit. One example is your visit to Ganzhou in Zhangji, which is 700 kilometres south of Beijing, and that was in July 2016. And it was really interesting to read about your description of the natural environment of the Nanking Mountains, these beautiful forests and palm trees, but also um, close by to that is the biggest rare metals mining area on the planet. Could you share with us why you decided to take this trip to Zhangji and what you found there? My job as a journalist, Amy, is really much to go on the field and to witness uh, what I'm writing. So that's why I went to these areas uh, in the southern uh, provinces of, of China, where rare earths are being extracted and refined. Um, some of the mines over there are very much illegal, uh, but uh, there is uh, it's difficult for the Chinese state and for Beijing to really have to put an hold on these on these activities because they are taking place in remote areas where it's, it's difficult to have a control of, of what's happening. But I just wanted to see with my own eyes how it happens. Actually, it was very difficult to see it. And um, it was also dangerous, actually, because uh, some of these illegal activities are being handled by local mafias. And at some point, I think I was... I was finding myself face to face with one of these or several of these guys from the local mafia. And I would feel like I had to just get away as soon as I could, otherwise I could have gotten into trouble. Yes. Well, I mean, it did seem like it was, you know, at a, a bit of a confrontation when you met those men in the Audi car. I wanted to talk to you about the type of mining that goes on in China, in these towns that you've seen, for example, the cancer town that you describe and the many health problems that seem to accompany these towns that really are right next to, if not in, mining areas. And of course, a lot of this goes to the rivers that are close to the mining pits and um, and obviously the mining processes, the refining processes. Clearly, um, a lot of that does go into rivers and it does contribute to, as you've said in this book, land becoming infertile and also local people in rural areas of China becoming unwell with different kinds of illnesses. So I wanted to ask you, what makes China's mining of rare earth metals different from other places that also did refining of rare earth metals? Because it sounds like it's fairly unregulated and the types of um, processes that they're using are in fact damaging the environment in different ways. Yes. What makes it different in China uh, compared to other countries? Um, first, I would say that uh, until recently, China and the Chinese state and Chinese authorities have not been very much uh, uh, interested in pollution. China has been very much willing for the last 40 years to catch up its economic delay to the West at whatever cost. And China would accept any kind of pollution as long as it enables the country to um, enjoy a two-digit growth for the last 40 years. So should you make a choice between getting richer and getting uh, more healthy, uh, the choice has always been in China to get richer. It's changed a little bit for the last years because the environmental mindset of the Chinese middle class has very much evolved. The Chinese middle class cannot stand up living anymore in such a polluted country. 
and regulations have been passed by the central government in order to make sure that any kind of industrial activities and especially mining activities are respecting a set of environmental regulations. But the Chinese state is a big state. And there's a phrase that I've heard last year when I was in China, uh, which is, uh, the emperor is far away and the mountains are high. That was a phrase that I heard in the province of Heilongjiang in the north of China. What It means that actually whatever you can decide in Beijing, you know, it's going to happen the way local authorities want it to happen. And, and Beijing will not have a grasp uh, on, on, on what's happening at thousands of kilometers away from Beijing. And um, between what's on paper, which, which are strict regulations for respecting the environment and the reality of just, you know, making the business run as usual, the choice is being made still today uh, in these uh, remote provinces of just of just not respecting the environment, of just dumping the waste wherever they can be, of uh, not taking into account uh, population's health. Once again, it's about money. It's about catching up the delay to the West, economic delay to the West, and it's about making China the world superpower. And that's why we end up with the situations of very dirty metals being extracted and refined in a dirty way and populations around that have been meeting many times uh, claiming and complaining about these uh, environmental nightmares. Yes, and so it's interesting when I was reading your book that you reference so many fascinating statistics and there are really a lot that are very shocking and surprising. But I, I was really surprised at just how much of a monopoly China has on the extraction and refining of rare earth metals in the world because, as you say, these metals are found across the globe in many different countries but China seems to have really built up a very strong hold on this process, this refining process. And uh, Western countries like France, which you talk about in the book, have given away this process to China because it was cheaper to have it outsourced. But they didn't, as you say in this book, they didn't realise that when they were outsourcing one process to China, it was going to lead to a lot more than just outsourcing the refining of rare earth metals to that country. It meant that, in fact, they were going to lose a lot more in terms of their hold on on manufacturing of rare earth metals. Yeah, you're very right, actually. And let me add to, to explain that rare metals are not very rare and we can find potential mines everywhere on Earth. The thing is that, as we explained, it's very polluting. And uh, the West, including Australia, back in the 1880s and 90s, just, just wanted to get rid of this uh, production. And actually, at the same time, the Chinese were offering to do the same job, but for a much better price. And we ended up so happy letting the Chinese doing the dirty job so that we could enjoy uh, green technologies. And what we, didn't, what we didn't realize is that the Chinese had a better plan than just producing the rare metals for the rest of the world. The Chinese wanted to move up the value chain. Uh, the Chinese don't want to sell only the metals. They want to sell the green technologies, the finished product, with the metal inside. And in that way, they can make much more money out of this industrial revolution that we call the green technology revolution. You know, the Chinese um, tell us something, Amy. They tell us, you guys in France and also in Australia, you don't sell grapes. You sell wine. And we, the Chinese, don't want to sell you rare metals. We want to sell you the finished product. And this is a very, this very simple idea that we all understand we want to, to get richer with a finished product rather than with the raw material. And it comes up and we end up in the situation today where actually China produces a bunch of these rare metals, sometimes up to 95% of the world production of these rare metals, and just stops supplying us with these rare metals because it keeps the rare metals for its own industrial needs and sells us the electric cars, the batteries, the wind turbines, and the solar panels. And the ecological issue becomes suddenly an economic issue because the green jobs now 
are for a lot of parts, a lot of them in China and not in the West anymore. Yes, um, that's such an excellent point, and you you make that really great comparison with wine, um, which of course. Chinese people do like to buy French wine from Bordeaux, um, which is understandable. <laughs> Same with Australian wines, I guess. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think our South Australian wines are particularly popular, but there's a plenty of different states in Australia that produce beautiful wine. I wanted to ask about, before we leave the broad area of China, I wanted to talk about Inner Mongolia, which is another place that you have visited as a journalist. And you talk about the fact that you first visited in 2011 to Inner Mongolia, and you were looking at a mining giant uh, company called Baogang, where hundreds of thousands of tons of rare earths are extracted annually by that company and they're responsible for 75% of global production. And so you were um, going to this mine or or trying to visit the mine and you had an excellent guide to help you. And I just wondered whether you could share with us what were the main things that you understood or learned from those trips to Inner Mongolia and why is Inner Mongolia such an important part of this story? Yeah, I was in Inner Mongolia in 2011 and in 2019 last year and I also uh, narrate in my book my last visit to Inner Mongolia last year and uh, this is really a very important place, very strategic for China because as you said, Three-fourths of the rare earths, uh, which is, once again, a specific class of rare metals, are being extracted and refined over there because, well, Inner Mongolia is just uh, a blessing for geologists, I guess. And um, it's it's not easy to go in these areas. And actually, uh, the last time I've been there last year, uh, I don't even want to know what could have happened if I had been arrested because I was even filming with a drone and we were, uh, you know, flying a drone over apocalyptic areas. I mean, the word apocalyptic is not exaggerated when you see what's happening over there. The, the, the refining process needs a lot of water, requires a lot of water. And the water is being mixed with a lot of chemicals during the refining process. And the water uh, going out of the manufacturing is of rare earths is supposed to be treated before it's being dumped in the in the in the nature, but it's not treated. It's just dumped into an artificial lake, whose name is a Wekuang Dam, outside of the city of Baotou, and the water just you know remains uh, stagnant in this huge lake. And this is what we've been filming, and it was absolutely impressive to see the kind of damages to the environment that it, you can get up there. And people live around this area and people live around that lake. And they talk about that lake as being a, a disaster that brings cancers. And you have cancer villages around the, the lake. And I remember also one lady, it was a farmer, uh, was name is Gao Xia, and she, it was just last year, and she had been removed from her village, which was probably a cancer village a cancer village because a lot of people die of cancers over there for obvious reasons. And she wouldn't be able to grow the land anymore because she would say that the land had become infertile and she had been moved into a, a building in the outskirts of Baotou and she would just have no job anymore. And she would explain all these situations and all the pollution. And at some point she said, but yeah, once again, we know what these rare earths are for. They are for, they are made for making beautiful products, green products, expensive products that we enjoy uh, everywhere in the world. But we don't realize that for making these things green, we need to actually um, experience pollution where we are. So this is what's, one very interesting experience for me to see the dark side. This is the title of the book, the undertitle of the book, the dark side of these beautiful technologies that we uh, that we rely upon today. And nobody will go to Baotou, by the way. It's very hard to get there. I mean, journalists don't get there. You can get arrested. I could have been probably... I don't know what would have happened to me, honestly, but I, I would take a, I have taken a lot of risk, even physical risk, to, to get there. And, and you're in China, you're in a country where... You've got cameras everywhere, video surveillance, and people like me are not welcome. And um, it's 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 difficult to see this uh, underside of green technologies. 
Yes. I can't really imagine what it looked like. It must be very affecting to see how a beautiful landscape could be changed, transformed by an industry like mining rare metals. And one of the quotes that you provide from a recognised Chinese expert in rare metals, Vivian Wu, Um, You say that uh, she said to you, the Chinese people have sacrificed their environment to supply the entire planet with rare earths. Ultimately, the price of developing our industry is just too high. And um, you've already mentioned there the fact that the middle class in China have become awakened to these environmental effects. And of course, air pollution is just one example, but there's also other examples that you give in the book. And you've um, mentioned here in terms of rivers and water supplies, and you say 10% of its arable land is contaminated by heavy metals, 80% of its groundwater is unfit for consumption. Only five of the 500 biggest cities in China meet international standards for air quality, and there are 1.6 million deaths per year due to air pollution alone. And um, some people, including an environmental activist that you speak with and you quote throughout this book, Ma Jun, said that this choice, this strategic choice to focus on rare metals was a, quote, monumental error. But you do provide the strategic rationale and the historical context for why China has engaged with rare metals. And um, one of the things that really struck me, and I'm glad that you did bring it into this book, was the fact that between the year 960 and today, China was the leading global power for close to nine centuries. And I think people really do forget about the great advancements that China has made previous to the 20th century and that they were truly a very advanced civilization and that we in the West can get very much obsessed with our own importance and our own achievements and not realise that there are other countries and areas who were very accomplished. Yeah, that's very true. And yeah, you're right. Actually, the Chinese are have very much this, their history in mind. They consider that what happened to them for the two last centuries, starting with uh, opium wars until uh, the end of the Mao Zedong area, is an exception in their history. This, this 150 years have been uh, years of disasters, uh, wars, and if you take uh, aside this uh, specific moment of the Chinese history, uh, everything looks good. And, and, and today, the country, due to its economic development, its economic policy, since Deng Xiaoping, is really much on the pace of becoming an empire again. And uh, you, you can understand, we can understand their rare metal strategy by just looking at their history. And when we look at this history, we understand how ambitious they are and how willing they are to actually correct, make some corrections on what happened in their recent history. And uh, we in the West should maybe understand that the Western domination on the world is only a 300 years domination, and that might come to an end. Yes, that's a really great point. And losing face and that kind of humiliation that Chinese people would have felt, particularly in terms of the Japanese and the way they were treated when they were invaded by the Japanese, that's one of those key moments in history that does come back and become very relevant to this book a little bit later on. So maybe I'll bring that in towards the end. But I did want to ask a little bit about some of the other countries that are also still important players in rare metals and then what kind of metals they are mining and also what then they're used for. What kind of technologies are reliant on these different rare earth metals? And you highlight one particular country that suffers a great deal of pollution from their mining of rare metals, and that's the Democratic Republic of Congo, which supplies over half of the planet's cobalt. And that's probably one of the more commonly heard 
rare metals, but I, I wondered whether you could share with us what different countries apart from China and um, Inner Mongolia are currently also important in terms of rare earth mining and also refining? Yes, rare earths uh, are mostly extracted in China, but you'll be happy to learn, and you probably already know it, that Australia is an important producer of rare earths, of uh, this specific class of rare metals. And Linus, which is an Australian group, uh, operates a mine in, in the centre of Australia, the mine of Mount Velt, and provides the rest of the world with a couple of percentage, I would say six, seven, eight percent of some rare earth for the rest of the world. Outside of these rare earths, you've got many rare metals that you mentioned. Tungsten, antimony, gallium, indium, you mentioned cobalt. Cobalt is extremely important for um, batteries of electric cars. Elon Musk uh, wishes to uh, manufacture electric cars without cobalt anymore, but in the meantime, cobalt is extremely strategic for green mobility. And DRC, the Republic, the Democratic Republic of Congo, produces 60% or 70% of the world cobalt, the world cobalt needs. But other countries are extremely important for this pace toward a green revolution. I want to mention Kazakhstan with chromium, for example. Uh, Russia is an important producer of palladium. Um, South Africa is a very important producer of platinoids, uh, which are also needed for these various technologies. Um, and uh, why not also talking about Brazil? Brazil is a very important producer of niobium. This is a little metal, but that is also very strategic. So what you can see is that this production is not only based in China, even if China uh, has a leadership in this production, but many various countries especially developing countries, poor countries or more poor countries than Western countries, uh, actually um, take the leadership in, in the production of these resources. And as uh, we get richer, as we get greener, as we get more digitalized uh, everywhere on, uh, on, uh, in the world, uh, we're going to have to dig even deeper to get these metals. Uh, we're going to have to find and explore new potential mines everywhere on Earth. And these countries that I've mentioned uh, will actually get multiplied. We're going to find even more mining countries in the future to extract these uh, resources. Indonesia is a very important country for extracting a lot of these metals and will become even more of, of, of a mining giant in the future as we need more of these metals. So there probably will not be a part of the world which will be taken out of this mining rush necessary for enjoying a greener life and a more digital life. And you mentioned there the company Linus. I was interested in the fact that they were seeking to process some of their rare uh, metals in Malaysia, but were having some troubles trying to establish that processing plant. Was that because they were trying to find an alternative to China? Yes, uh, Linus is by itself an alternate, an alternative to China because the rare earths produced by Linus are produced in Australia. Uh, so that's already an alternative. The thing is, that's one thing to extract the rare earths in the Australian soil. That's another to refine these rare earths. And as we explained, refining the rare earths is, is extremely polluting. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a deal was passed between Linus and the Malaysian government to build and to uh, run a, a, a refining plant in Malaysia. And not only extracting the refining uh, the, the, the ore and coming up with an end product that is 100% uh, extracted and refined out of China makes sense for strategic reasons, for mineral sovereignty. Um, the problem is that the Malaysians, many Malaysians, are very happy with this because they, 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 they say, listen, what you're doing is just you relocate your pollution. You don't want to, to have this polluting, refining process on your own soil. And you just uh, let us with a dirty job of refining these products for 
for the rest of the world as the Chinese did and to end up with a waste of the refining process that we will have to take care of for thousands of years because the waste is, is radioactive. It's not a, a very high level of radioactivity, but it's still a, a certain level of radioactivity and the waste need to be stored and processed according to strict regulations. So, as you see, uh, this is interesting to see that, you know, once again, we in the West always keep finding ways of actually relocating our pollution to countries which are willing to sacrifice health and environment in order to, to get richer and to, to catch up a certain economic and business uh, delay to the rest of the world. And that's such an important point and really what this book reminds us constantly is that there are ethical and moral considerations always when we're talking about energy, but particularly the mining of rare metals. I wanted to go into the electric car in a little bit of more detail because you cite some interesting studies and you have just mentioned there the fact that Elon Musk wants to move away from some of the materials that they have become quite reliant upon, um, but they still are very reliant. And you talk about the lithium-ion battery, which is very important to the Tesla car and to all electric vehicles, and the fact that they are composed of a number of different materials being 80% nickel, 15% cobalt, 5% aluminium, as well as lithium, copper, manganese steel, and graphite. And um, you cite a, a 2012 study from the University of California in LA, which was comparing the carbon impact of a conventional fuel-driven car against that of an electric car. And they were finding that there were a lot of other metrics that we need to keep into account when we're thinking about how an electric car saves us energy and pollution. And I wondered if you could share with us the findings that people have made about electric cars, which are reliant upon green technology, and just how when you factor in these processes of mining these metals, processing these metals, creating these batteries, and then putting them in the cars and manufacturing the cars, do we save much in terms of pollution and just how polluting are they? This um, UCLA study is a 2012 study. So uh, we could actually mention more recent studies which basically come up with the same results as long as the technology of lithium-ion batteries will not have changed. The, the, the study shows that actually manufacturing an electric car is more polluting than manufacturing an oil car. Because the, the, the electric car, and especially the battery, is a, is a tricky process to manufacture. It needs a lot of minerals that you have mentioned. And for this reason, it is more polluting and it's more energy consuming. And uh, actually, an electric car, uh, when manufactured, has required two to four more times uh, energy than uh, a conventional oil car. The good point when you, uh, with an electric car is that when you drive it, you don't emit uh, the pollution that you can emit when you drive with an oil car. You don't need to uh, reload uh, the, the car with fuel. But actually, an electric car needs also to be reloaded. And the electric battery needs to be reloaded with electricity in order to have autonomy and to run a couple of more miles. And the question is, where does the electricity come from? The electricity may come from various sources. It comes from a, net, a nuclear power plant, or it can come from a coal or an oil or a gas power plant or a wind farm or a solar farm. So you've got to appreciate the pollution of reloading the electric car uh, with uh, electricity according to the type of electricity that you have in your electricity mix. In France, for example, or in Norway, these countries very much rely upon either hydroelectricity or nuclear. So it doesn't emit that much CO2. So that's a good news. But in countries like China or India, where 60-70% of the electricity is produced out of coal and oil, 
well, you need CO2. I mean, you emit CO2 for producing the electricity that will end up in a car that is said to not emit any CO2. And if you take, if you make a full cycle analysis, uh, that means if you take into account the pollution generated by an electric car from uh, the mine to the dump, uh, to the recycling process, well, you can end up with cars which actually could emit as much CO2 during their entire life than a conventional oil car. And that's what these studies tend to show. An electric car is good as long as your electricity is not carbonized. And an electric car will not be good if your electricity is, is too much carbonized. And unfortunately, 40% of the electricity today is produced in the world, this is an average, out of coal. So that doesn't mean, Amy, that we shouldn't move to electric cars. We shouldn't change. I mean, I don't want to keep emitting CO2 when I run in a car. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with the idea of an energy transition, of a green energy transition, and of moving to green cars. But we should really have a precise look at the ecological truths of these technologies, which we are unaware of. And as we see, the comparison between the former world and the new world is not as easy as it would seem. It's not an opposition between the dark world of the past and the wonderful green world of the future. The reality is much more nuanced. We're going to change, we're going to substitute one kind of pollution by other types of pollution. And we're going not necessarily to solve the problem, but we're going to replace these problems by other types of problems. This is what our green energy transition is all about. And in, in this new world needs to be addressed and assessed. And this is what these studies are all about. Mm, that's such an excellent point. I'm sure everyone listening is agreeing with you in terms of wanting to pollute less. And um, that's why so many people have been so enthusiastic about green technology is this idea that there is an alternative to fossil fuels that have really dominated global energy. But particularly, I'm thinking about Australia because we are notorious um, in terms of our obsession with fossil fuels, mm. even with our Prime Minister just recently talking about a gas-led coronavirus economic recovery. Uh -huh. So even when we're in recession, we're apparently still thinking gas is the primary energy source that we should be focusing on investing in, which um, many people here disagree with. But coming back from fossil fuels for a moment, I did want to pick up on what you said just before about these materials, these metals that, as you say, they're across the world, but this green-led new transition, this third industrial revolution, so to speak, or energy revolution that will be green and, and is meant to actually reduce our emissions and improve things like climate change, reduce the warming of the planet. It is reliant upon a finite resource. And as we've already discussed, one that is very much emissions intensive, but also polluting intensive in terms of the current refinement process. And um, I wanted to pick up on what you talk about towards the end of the book in terms of the fact of just how finite these resources are and if we are still going on our current kind of growth trajectory as a planet, how quickly we're going to run out of some of these really important metals that our current technologies, our digital technologies like our smartphones that you've discussed, but also those energy technologies are very much completely reliant upon at this stage. So I'll just reference some of what you describe. You say that at the current rate of production, we run the risk of exhausting the viable reserves of 15 or so base and rare metals in under 50 years. We can expect the same for five additional metals, including currently abundant iron, before the end of this 21st century. And in the short to medium term, we are looking at potential shortages in vanadium, dysprosium, terbium, europium, and neodymium. Exactly. And uh, you say that titanium and indium are also stretched and cobalt is heading in the same direction. So, you know, it's interesting to me when we think about fossil fuels and we talk about growth as a kind of a constant economic goal that we have, that really we're still constrained or we should be still constrained by the fact that we are living on a planet with finite resources. 
What are your thoughts on the fact that these these rare metals are finite and that because we are currently reliant upon them and our growth is only exponential, you know, every year, every five years, we're growing and growing as a population, as a nation. And China and India, for example, are lifting millions of people out of poverty as they should and um, also countries within Africa. So we're going to see naturally uh, a more and more heavy reliance upon these rare earth metals. What are your thoughts on that and what the, the solution should be or could be to that? The, the, the growth, Amy, of the consumption of these uh, metals is extremely strong. It can be a two-digit growth per year. So if uh, we make the calculation of how what will be our needs in 2030 or 2040, these needs are huge compared to what they are today. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's frequent that we end up realizing that uh, within the next decades, we're going to need up to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 more of such metals, depending on which metal you're talking about. But we're going to need up to 50 more times certain metals and our needs today in 2020. So projections have been made uh, regarding uh, the possibilities that actually uh, we could run out of these resources. And the figures that you quote are perfectly right. They emanate from studies saying, listen, this is the known reserve that we we know that this resource exists, these reserves, but actually we uh, consume and exploit much more of them. The thing is, every year and every decade, we find new uh, extraction technologies. So at the same time, technologies evolved. And it's possible that actually we might not run out of these resources because in the meantime, the technological evolutions and progresses will be such that we'll find new reserves, we'll find new techniques. but. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, keep in mind that the biggest mines, the world-class mines, are actually getting poorer and poorer and that you need to go deeper and deeper and to use more uh, energy and to use more chemicals in order to actually keep the the, the pace of of extraction. And my my feeling is that we're not going to run out of these resources uh, in the future, except maybe for cobalt, because experts are very much worried about cobalt, uh, which is rare. Uh, but for the other ones, it's very likely that we're going to find more and more, uh, you know, new mines. The question is, at what cost? Mm. There will be additional energy costs, additional mm. economic costs additional ecological costs and additional sociologic social costs because we in the West and in other countries, we realize it's additional costs. And at some point, we might consider, that's my feeling, that's an intuition, that uh, maybe the costs of extracting more of these resources in more difficult conditions will be higher than the benefits we get out of it. And listen, Amy, this is the same happening with oil today. No people tend to consider that oil as bigger costs in terms of environmental impact than the benefits you can get out of it. And we just try to get out of oil, of this oil age, not because we are lacking oil, there's so much oil around us everywhere, but because we consider that we need to change. And I think at some point, this will be the same happening with rare metals. We're going to get rid of these rare metals, not because we lack rare metals, not because the earth cannot provide sufficient of these resources, but because we consider that the costs of green technologies are higher than the benefits we could get. And this day, we're going to have to go to another energy revolution. This is going to be the fourth industrial revolution. Mm. That brings me to the question of the solutions. What mm-hmm. do we do? Well, uh, I really much believe in, in technology. I don't believe only in technology, but I believe in technology and I believe in research. I believe in uh, new materials. I believe in recycling. I believe in substituting, replacing certain types of very pollutant uh, metals by other metals which are less pollutant. And these researchers need millions, maybe billions of dollars of uh, public funding and private funding in order to make the future technologies less polluting 
than what they are today. And this is going to be the case because technological progress is such today that we can believe in it. But I also believe that the solutions are not only in just trying to find a technological miracle that will suddenly solve all the problems that we are facing now. And that brings the question of relocating production, uh, not letting the dirtiest countries on earth taking care of these metals, which are supposed to make our world greener. That is a nonsense. And this is what I believe that, you know, uh, the relocation of the mining and refining and industry processes to countries with higher regulations, better controls, should be really, really on the strategic agenda of our states, Australia, Europe, the United States. This is actually kind of the case right now. Also for strategic reasons, for not being dependent on China, but this has also a good ecological impact to say that mining and refining happens in countries which are more responsible. And uh, certainly one of the solutions, which is huge and which it is not a solution that is easy to grasp, is to wonder if we keep consuming the way we do. And I'm not degrow. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, thinking that uh, uh, we should uh, stop uh, economic progress and economic growth. But I think it's worth questioning uh, if this um, uh, technological revolution uh, shouldn't come maybe with a more personal uh, questioning about how we consume and the impact, the real impact of, of, of the way we consume on, 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 on ecosystems. And I think this uh, question is, uh, you know, is huge and, and very hard to be addressed, but I don't think we, we will be able to escape from this very fundamental question of our consumption trends in the future, in the next decades. Yes, that's such an excellent point to make. And um, it did bring me to one of your um, concluding points, which you've already just mentioned, but I, I really appreciated what you wrote, which was to say, if we returned mining operations in some form, um, that that our populations would instantly realise to our horror the true cost of our self-declared modern, connected and green world. We can well imagine having quarries in our backyard would put an end to our indifference and denial and drive our efforts to contain the resulting pollution because we would not want to live like the Chinese. We would pile pressure onto our governments to ban even the smallest release of cyanide and to boycott companies operating without the full array of environmental accreditations. In short, we would be so determined to contain pollution that we would make astounding environmental progress and wind back our rampant consumption. You know, I, I hope that is what would happen. I really do. I think I feel like the French are, are very good at protesting and voicing their opinions to their government. So, oh yes, we are. <laughs> and and a very much that's a very long part of your your history. Um, I think that's an excellent point, is to realise that because it is so far away, we are constantly, as you've already said, outsourcing our pollution, outsourcing the environmental destruction, and also outsourcing the personal consequences that our consumption is having onto other people. A lot of it, as you've said, um, people living in rural and regional areas who don't have the same types of resources that people living in cities do either. I did want to pick up on a couple of points before we finish, and they were relating to Japan, um, which I did mention earlier. The first one was recycling, and I thought it would be important to mention because a lot of people would think, well, of course, if you're using all of these rare metals, why don't you just recycle them like we do with aluminium cans? Of course, in Australia, that's an example of what we do is we put our cans in the recycling. But you do highlight the fact that Japan has been doing collection drives to try and stockpile these types of technologies that do have rare metals in them in the hope of one day recycling them. But there is also a darker side to this, which is that as you have already intimated that there are countries like America, for example, that send their metals over to countries in Asia um, who also don't have the ability to recycle these yet. Yes, we do send back our waste, our electronic waste, out of our borders uh, to Africa or to Asia, uh, because we in the West, or at least in Europe, and that's true within the United States, uh, we just don't know how to uh, make money out of this waste. You know, it's very easy to, to extract a base metal uh, from um, a product, 
base metals such as aluminium because usually it's 100% pure. A can of, of, uh, of aluminium is pure. So you just, you know, take it, uh, melt it, and you just uh, remanufacture a new can out of the first can. It can be as simple as that. But when we talk about electronic uh, technologies or even green technologies, these products are often made of what we call alloys, new materials made of alloys, which means that you mix metals together to make this new alloy much more efficient, much more powerful. And the question is, how do you separate the mixed metals in the alloy from each other in order to restart and to remanufacture a product? And separating them is extremely difficult and extremely costly. But what is less costly is to go back to China and to the Chinese mine, because as we know, the price of the mineral is not that expensive. So when you're an industrial and when you don't know how to make savings, well, you end up getting back to the mine rather than going back to the recycler who may offer you a recycled product, but more expensive. And only for, I mean, certainly for technological reasons, because technologies have not evolved sufficiently for recycling, but also more basically for business reasons. We don't recycle these rare metals and we recycle for most of them less than one person. So we don't recycle them at all. So the, the, the problem is here is that it's not that we can't. This is that we don't want to recycle them once again, because we are looking for producing and buying the cheapest possible products. So the huge and, 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 the, and the big and, and one of the solutions in the future that needs to be addressed is how do we find technologies, how do we develop technologies that makes it less expensive to recycle these metals so that we don't have to go back to the mine and that's good for sustainable development? And also, what is the real cost we're ready to pay? <laughs> and what is the additional cost we're ready to put into a car or into a phone in order to make this technology, this product really much more green than what it really is? And once again, that brings us back to the kind of consumption trend that we want to embrace in the future. Uh, that is not something that can be dealt with technology, but with politics or with societal debate. But certainly, the greener world should be more expensive for our portfolio than what it is. And this is something we'll have to face. Yes. And I hope that we do have these public debates and, and government leading in regulation and also strategy in this area. And it does bring me to my final question. And it's something that I think is now on the minds of many leaders, but also many people around the world. And it's the fact that the coronavirus pandemic has really brought front of mind the positive effects, but also the risks of globalization and the fact that we do rely on different countries for various things. For example, the manufacturing of masks, the manufacturing of certain materials that are required to conduct tests for coronavirus. And it did bring to mind this idea of the dangers of relying on the manufacturing or the resources um, of countries where there is a monopoly, where one country has a key monopoly on a certain thing. And it has meant that a lot of governments have suggested that they should be manufacturing their own personal protective equipment, their own resource in this certain area because when all the borders closed and when travel wasn't happening then they didn't have access suddenly to this really important material or product or resource and you do really refer to this in a very key way in relation to rare metals talking about the fact that if any country has a monopoly on a certain metal and of course as you've already mentioned in our discussion there are a range of countries that do have a very strong monopoly on a certain material but I did want to focus on an example that you give, which is that there was a tense moment in 2010 between Japan and China, and it brought front to mind at that time to some leaders the fact that China could decide 
that they need some of these rare metals more because they have a growing population and that perhaps they might decide that they won't be sharing those metals with different countries. And one of those examples was the one you gave, where some of the companies within China decided that they wouldn't be sending their rare earth metals to Japan out of the blue because of this diplomatic incident that arose on the seas. And I just wondered whether you could share with us that story and how that illustrates this concern that is front of mind, I think, for a lot of leaders, the danger of a kind of monopoly and the fact that we are so interconnected now. Yes, um, these rare earths are really strategic and they are strategic for electronic products, green products and also military uh, technologies. And when you've got one country uh, producing up to 95% of certain rare earths for the rest of the world and given the strategic importance of these metals, then you don't have to to, to have a PhD to understand that there is a risk. And China has perfectly understood this leadership on the production of these strategic commodities that it has. And in the history, any country that can use such leadership on a strategic commodity uh, in order to rebalance uh, the diplomatic relations with other countries has been using such a leadership and such a, such a card in its, in, its, in its game. And that's what China did in, in 2010. Uh, the tensions in the southern uh, Chinese sea uh, with Japan have been happening for years. Around specific islands uh, was ownership is disputed and uh, uh, because uh, the tensions were such, at some point, China uh, just uh, uh, informally declared an embargo to Japan, and then this embargo was also informally declared to the United States. And for six months, there would not be any more rare earths available for Japanese and, and for American manufacturers. And everyone in the rare earth industry knew that this event would happen at some point, because the Chinese had already told the Japanese that in case of uh, disputes uh, or diplomatic tensions, they would activate this weapon this so-called weapon of rare earths. And that's what they did. Actually, they restarted and they did it a second time, almost they did in 2019, amid trade tensions with the United States. And uh, um, uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China, visited a, a refining a manufacturing in the province of Jiangxi. We talked about Jiangxi at the beginning of the show. And uh, he didn't say anything, but he just was just visiting this rare earths um, refining Manufacturing, and then the official media would actually, uh, you know, write, especially uh, uh, talking to the United States, don't mess up with us, especially with these trade sanctions, because we know how to retaliate. So what we see is that once again, uh, China is willing to use any uh, asset it has in this uh, diplomatic and trade uh, confrontation with uh, the United States and, and, and also with Japan uh, to push its own interests. And these countries are so much dependent upon these specific metals that uh, this is obviously uh, an akil toe, as we can say, and uh, that, uh, that, 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 is a, that is obviously a, a weakness for them. So this is going to keep happening and this is not going to stop. And uh, the question now is how these countries, especially the United States, can uh, develop their own mining industry, their own rare earth industry in order to circumvent this Chinese leadership. But we should probably not expect much from China in the next years in terms of rare earth exports, uh, I think that would be a dangerous strategy to uh, solely expect uh, China to to play the WTO games uh, in the future. So we'll have at some point to to produce these rare metals and these strategic metals by ourselves. Yes. It does make me think that um, it's not surprising that China uses this very important card to play, given that the United States of America has been very antagonistic towards them in these trade disputes under the presidential term of Donald Trump. So um, it will be interesting to watch the presidential election and to see what happens um, as that may affect this area as well. Uh, I can tell you a bit because... Um 
whether it is Trump or not Trump uh, uh, winning the next elections, uh, the, the question of rare earths uh, and, and the dependence of the United States on, on rare earth supplies from China is on the political agenda today, especially uh, in the Republican Party. And you've got uh, two high political figures in the United States, such as Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, who are very much pushing bills, uh, laws in order to uh, develop a stronger U.S. independence uh, towards uh, Chinese rare metals. Uh, the trade tensions with China are such that uh, at some point, uh, I mean, the legislative process towards gaining more independence by producing rare earths in the United States will keep going. It's going to take time. Uh, rebuilding a manufacturing uh, able to manufacture magnets made of rare earths, it's, it's, it can take up to 15 years, according to uh, some official reports in the United States. So it's not tomorrow that the United States will regain independence from Chinese supply. And I think after years of political disinterest on this strategic topic, uh, today, once again, rare metals uh, are on the agenda and that's not going to stop in the United States. That's not going to stop in Australia because I see a strong uh, dynamic. And that starts being a question in Europe, uh, especially not on the military side, but on uh, the electric vehicle side, because we in Europe have a strong industry, uh, electric vehicles, I mean, vehicles industry. Uh, today, batteries are being manufactured in China, for 70% of the world electric batteries, it's a huge loss of profits and of green jobs. And if we want to keep our industry running afloat uh, in the green age, uh, our vehicle industry, our automotive industry in Europe, we'll have to get this metal somewhere. And we see a debate now around lithium, which is not rare, but which is a strategic metal for green technologies. And we have a debate in Europe around, about lithium. Where are we going to get the lithium? And actually, there's a lot of lithium in Portugal, Austria, Finland. So we see this debate really taking shape. And I'm, I'm quite impressed to see that for the last 10 years that I've followed this subject of rare metals, which, have of, which was not interesting much people, I can see that today in 2020, we're just at the beginning of this renewed interest in this, in this topic. And it's not going to stop. It's just the beginning. Yes. Guillaume, it's clear that you've done so much in terms of investigative reporting on the ground in so many different countries and also over 10 years of research for this book, which is very in-depth, very well thought through. And um, we've just scratched the surface and touched on some of the key points on this really interesting topic. So I do hope that anyone listening can um, make sure that they pick up this book, The Rare Metals War, The Dark Side of Clean Energy and Digital Technologies, and to start to think about this for themselves as well in terms of your points, which is to rethink the way we consume, to look at the health and environmental issues that this rare metals war does bring forward and look at what our countries are doing to deal with this strategic problem. So thank you so much for your time today and your great work on this topic. Thank you, Amy, for inviting me. It's been, it's been really a pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.